This is another Evening Under Lamplight podcast with Robert Louis Abrahamson, now at Canto 28 of Dante's Purgatorio, as we enter the third main region of this poem, having risen last time above the actual purgatory itself. And now we find ourselves with Dante and Virgil and Statius in, of all places, the Garden of Eden. Virgil had told Dante in that final speech of his that Dante was free to do whatever he pleased now, to sit or walk around. He chooses to walk around into this divine forest up there. The leaves are thick, and they temper the glare of the rising sun. He wanders through the forest, lento, lento, slowly, slowly, taking his time after all that long period of feeling rushed to keep moving on because time was pressing. He is aware of the fragrance of the vegetation and the steady breeze blowing from the east, bending the branches of the trees, but, but not so much that the birds, with their morning songs, are in any way disturbed. When he is so far into the woods that he can no longer see the point at which he arrived up at this level, his progress is stopped by a stream. Not all that wide, just three paces or so, but he stops to notice the way the waves are all pushing the grass on the banks all in one direction. The water in the stream is purer than any river on earth, so clear that even in the shade of the trees you can see the bottom quite distinctly. He puts it in an interesting way. His feet have stopped, but his eyes keep going. He looks across the stream and suddenly notices, wiping away all other thoughts, a beautiful, solitary lady on the other side, singing as she is collecting flowers. I pray you, lovely lady, Dante calls over to her, to come closer to the stream so I can hear what you're singing. You remind me of Proserpina, at what she was doing just before her mother lost her and lost the springtime. The lady turns to him, delicately moving as in a dance, and though she's now facing him, she lowers her eyes as in modesty. She comes closer to accommodate Dante's request, and now he can hear her song. <laughs> but he puzzlingly never tells us anything about the song. As soon as she comes to the edge of the stream, she stops and looks up at Dante, who's overpowered by the loving look she gives him. That stream separating him from her now seems a hated hindrance. Why won't it part for him like the Red Sea? But now she begins to speak to him. You're new here, she begins. New meaning both a newcomer here and a newly made person. And maybe that's why you don't quite understand the meaning of my smile. But just remember the sound delectasti and your mind will clear up. She's been speaking in the plural to all three of them, Dante, Virgil, and Statius. But now she focuses on Dante, who's the one who initially asked her to come closer. If there's anything you want to know, just ask me. I'm here to answer your questions. And yes, of course Dante has questions. Statius had explained several cantos ago that there is no natural weather higher up here on the mountain. That earthquake, for instance, had not arisen because of movements within the earth, but from a kind of divine fiat to celebrate the soul's finishing its healing process. And so how, he wonders, does it happen that there's a breeze here and a stream? 
A breeze, he knows, comes from movements of the air and variations of temperature, and rivers, if they are to keep flowing, need to be replenished by rainfall. He can't work this out. Oh, yes, I can answer this, she says to him. The highest good created human beings good, desiring only good things. He created this place for them, a place of eternal peace. Though the first people did wrong, and this changed their joyful dance here for a life of hardship. But this place he created, rising high up, was beyond the changes of temperature and evaporation and the rest of the weather features down below. The air is affected only by the movement of the heavenly spheres, and that's how the breeze arises. And this movement of the air stirs the plants so that their seeds are borne away into the wind down to the lands below, where they germinate and grow according to the various climates down there. I should add that there are even more plants here than you will see down there, more German kinds of fruit than can be found on earth. As for the stream, no, it's not renewed by vapor rising from it and then condensing back into rain. It is constantly renewed simply by God's desire. And there are two streams here. The one between us now is Lethe, and it has the power to wipe away all memory of sin. The other stream, Unoe, refreshes the memory of every good act. You have to drink from both in order for them to have an effect. I've answered your questions, and she goes on to say, but let me add one more thing. This place we are in now is the very place that the ancient poets were speaking of when they described the Golden Age. Here is the Golden Age world, where the first people were innocent, where it is always spring, always a time of fruitfulness. This connection between the Garden of Eden and the world described in the Greek and Latin poets pleases Dante so much that, that he turns around to Virgil and Statius, those Latin poets, Maybe he's raising his eyebrows or something, as if to say, There, see, your poetry was right, after all. And they smile back at Dante, who then returns his attention to the beautiful lady. And there the canto ends. This canto is a rest canto. There's nothing Dante has to do. He's free to wander slowly, appreciating the beauty of this region here at the top of the mountain. It's a pivot between all the active walking around through hell and purgatory and the contemplative appreciation he will be experiencing in heaven. But as usual, and as expected, Dante's observations lead to questions, and also, as usual, there is someone there to answer his questions. The lady he meets here first attracts Dante in ways we'll have to discuss further in a few minutes, and then she answers his questions about why there is wind and how there can be running water. And then, as a bonus answer, she identifies this place, the Garden of Eden, with the Golden Age described in the Greek and Latin poems. So the theme of poetry continues even here, bringing together the modern and the classical myths, as I'll explain. In one sense, it's a difficult canto, because we have to open ourselves to the innocence present in this wood, an innocence that we have known in our lives only, I suppose, in fleeting moments. Dante's challenge is how to describe such primal innocence. 
the kind of thing that Milton does so poignantly in his depiction of Adam and Eve before the fall, such vibrant, free, and loving people making us, as we read, or, or at least making me, feel tawdry and falling short of my potential. That's Milton. Now, how does Dante describe innocence? Well, one way is by contrast. This sacred forest contrasted with the dark wood of the opening canto of the Inferno. We might have noticed that, although this is the Garden of Eden, it's not portrayed as a garden, which in medieval terms would be a walled garden. Instead, it's depicted as a rich, flourishing forest. There's no reason why Dante shouldn't have shifted from garden to forest, especially since it sets him up for the contrast between this place and the Selva Oscura, the dark wood that opened the Inferno. That dark wood was frightening, signifying the experience of being lost, out of control, and any attempt to escape to a brighter place was thwarted by fierce wild animals. This forest is also dark, from the lush overhanging trees, but this is not a confusing darkness, just a comforting shade, taking away the bright glare of the sunlight. And though Dante now has no specific path to follow, he's not lost, but is just wandering around, taking in the delights here, delights that include an abundance of beautiful flowers and fragrances and the joyful morning singing of the birds in the trees. No wild beasts now. But the strongest image of innocence is the lady Dante meets here. Her identity is not given. We learn her name only in passing in the final canto, but we can use the name now. She's Matilda. Now, if we were asked to name the most innocent pastime we can think of, we might just say it was gathering flowers for a garland and singing as you walk along. And, of course, that's what we see Matilda doing. She graciously accedes to Dante's request to come closer, but moves with her eyes modestly on the ground until she comes to a stop just across the stream from Dante, when she raises her eyes and gives him a look of deep love. And there's where we see another contrast. Dante, it seems, is unfamiliar with such an innocent look of love. His imagery gives us a hint of what might have been going through his mind. First, he says, she reminds him of Proserpina, who begins her mythic journey by gathering flowers in a beautiful springtime meadow. But behind that image is the rest of the story. Pluto rising up from the underworld and grabbing the young Proserpina, taking her down to Hades to be his queen. As Dante responded to her loving eyes with such images of possessive love, he has, as we know, been purified of any lustful urges, but maybe he simply can conceive of no other response to those loving eyes than erotic love. And yet if this lady reminds him of Proserpina, then let's suppose his imagination runs on further to the rest of the story. When Proserpina is restored to the upper world, springtime has returned. That fresh new start that this return to the innocent garden signifies. And the Italian can go in two ways. The springtime is primavera, but we can split the word and get prima and vera, the first truth. Dante may have had a momentary flash of Pluto's aggressive desires, but he easily can move beyond it as he realizes the primal truth standing there before him. Well, that's Dante's mythic imagery for Matilda's gathering flowers. 
Then her loving eyes, as she raises them to him, remind him of Venus' eyes, after she'd been accidentally pricked by one of Cupid's arrows and fell in love with the first person she next saw, Adonis. Again we have an erotic image. Has Dante's world-experienced mind interpreted Matilda's loving look into a kind of infatuation for him? Perhaps so, but, I propose, not for long, once we remember that Adonis was the epitome of human beauty. And so, in this sense, what Matilda's eyes reveal is her perception of the beauty within Dante. That is the kind of love shining from innocent eyes. And then there's a third image, Leander swimming the Hellespont to get to his lover Hero. Dante says he hates that stream as Leander hated those waters that kept him from his beloved. But again, behind this detail of the myth is another detail. Leander died trying to swim across. Dante is showing us that he knows that it would be a kind of death to make the attempt to go across this water, only three paces wide compared to the vast Hellespont, and to reinforce this is the memory of Xerxes, who had a floating bridge built across the Hellespont so his army could cross and meet with the Greek army. Xerxes lost, and crossed back over these waters in shameful defeat. In the way I'm looking at this part of the canto, Dante must be coming to realize that any kind of possessive, erotic response to Matilda's eyes is wrong, a regressive, even deadly mistake, a defeat. And he dismisses whatever misunderstanding might have come to him. And now he's open to Matilda herself, not a projection onto her. Her first words are significant. You are new here, as though that explains the misconception. Only she says voi, not to, the plural form of you. She's addressing all three of them, perhaps to spare Dante the embarrassment of singling him out. And then she returns her gaze just on to him, and apparently recognizing Dante's confusion, she reminds him of the line in Psalm 92, Quia delectasti me, Domine, in factura tua, for thou, Lord, hast made me glad through thy works, and I will rejoice in giving praise for the operations of thy hands. In other words, she's not casting loving looks to Dante because of any specific attraction to him, but because, seeing his beauty, she can rejoice, giving praise for this work of God's hands. Dante's presence, we might say, is yet another gift that she acknowledges has come her way, to which she responds with grateful joy. Now she can offer, in innocent loving-kindness, whatever help she can give Dante in clearing up further misunderstandings he may have. Dante's questions concern the climate here. He assumes that the winds and waters will operate in the same way as he is used to in the world below, but they don't, as we might expect they wouldn't in a sacred forest. The wind comes from the movement of the farthest sphere, the origin of all movement in the universe. I think we discussed this medieval scheme of the universe sometime earlier, but we can review it again. The Earth, in this geocentric model, is at the center of the universe. It is surrounded by concentric spheres, each containing or ruled by a star, or what we would call a planet, the Moon, Mercury, Venus, and so on, up to Saturn. Dante will rise up through these spheres in the Paradiso, 
and so we will become much more familiar with this model then, each sphere having its own characteristic. Beyond these spheres is the sphere of the fixed stars, housing what we would call the stars in their various patterns or constellations. And beyond that is the primum mobile, or first mover. The movement of this sphere impels all the spheres below it and eventually exerts a force upon Earth, this steady breeze Dante has noticed. It seems the function of this breeze is to stir all the plants so that their seeds can be blown around the world, generating all the plant life throughout the living world. If we're open to this image, I think we may experience the innocent wonder appropriate to this place. We are looking at the origin of all plants, all vegetables, all wood, and of course all the beauty of the colors, textures, fragrances of the natural world. It, it's as though we have been taken behind the scenes, only what we discover is not the mechanical process of cause and effect, seed and root and leaves, etc., but a generous, loving impulse sending out these good things for us. At the heart of the world is that loving impulse of generous abundance. Matilda's explanation of the source of the water adds to this sense of generosity at the heart of all things. In our world, rivers and streams work in a cycle, water evaporating, then condensing and falling as rain, replenishing the water, at least in a good season, without drought, but that's another story. Here, in the Garden of Eden, however, the water is replenished not by that natural cycle, but simply by what seems to be divine will. The other news is that there are two streams. Dante is standing by the stream or river Lethe, which wipes away the memory of past sins. The other river, Unoe, restores or refreshes the memory of our good deeds. But the catch, well, it's not really a catch, is that you have to drink from both waters. Lethe first, then Unoe, in order for them to be effective. Look at it this way. If we have wiped away the memory of our sins, but have not refreshed our memory of our good deeds, what then are we left with? And if we have the good memories, but also the sinful ones, what's the point? When we have healed from all the false desires and false actions in our past, why should we ever want to go back in our mind to what we'd done wrong? We may ask what's the point of even remembering our good deeds, since now we are living in the present, not the past. But I think the memory of the good things we've done may just increase our thankfulness. We can, <laughs> we can never get enough of goodness. And finally, Matilda gives her bonus explanation. Does she know that these are three poets standing before her, two of them classical poets? Maybe some intuition tells her so. This place, the Garden of Eden, is perhaps, she says, the very place that the classical poets were depicting when they spoke of the Golden Age. And I think this is significant. Dante is saying that both myths, the biblical myth and the Greek myth, point to the same truths, but, but in different languages. And a third myth, too, Dante's myth in the Divine Comedy. It's the sense that somewhere in our common past, or perhaps also in our individual past, is an intuitive memory of a golden age of primal innocence, which we have lost. 
The comfort is that our world doesn't have to be as violent and hate-filled and disease-ridden as we see it now. It wasn't always like this. And primal purity is still available to us today, as Dante's myth shows us. Through that process of healing we have been following, we can, if we carry it out in our own lives, we can, at least in part, purify ourselves so that we can, at least at moments, experience some of that innocent joy. And perhaps we can get inspired glimpses also by simply reading vivid literature, recreating this experience. And I think this is what Dante wanted his poetry to do for us. Well, that's a lot to take in. We meet a complex, colorful pageant in the next canto, and I'll see you there.